A fully intact General Motors EV1 is one of the rarest cars from the late 20th century. The EV1 was the first and only passenger car to be labeled with the General Motors designation, rather than the designation of one of its divisions like Buick or Cadillac or Chevy or Oldsmobile. The EV1 was only produced from 1996 until 1999, and it was only available by lease, not for sale. The EV1 was the first mass-produced and purpose-designed electric vehicle post-World War II. There were electric cars way back in the day in the Model T era of cars, but not really after that, and certainly not from a major automaker. The EV1 was produced somewhat under protest. GM decided to build a run of them after a concept car they designed for an auto show in 1990, which was called the Impact got a lot of favorable attention. And as a result of that attention, the California Air Resource Board, or CARB, mandated that the, at the time, seven major automakers that were selling cars in the U.S. had to produce and make available zero emissions vehicles if they wanted to continue marketing their cars in California. So GM had gotten some good press for their concept car, the Impact. And this government body, CARB, was telling them they had to produce a zero-emission vehicle if they wanted to keep doing business in California. This led to their run of 1,117 GM EV1s produced over the span of three years. The car itself was a two-seat, two-door coupe, and over half of the cars produced were the first-generation model, which was manufactured in 1996. And those first-generation EV1s were powered by a lead-acid battery, essentially a huge version of the battery that starts up your car when you turn it on, while the later versions, the second-generation model that was manufactured in 1999, were powered by massive nickel-metal hydride batteries, which are the same technology that's used to make those little rechargeable AA batteries that you probably have powering your TV remote control or other small devices around your home. The reaction to the EV1 from customers who leased them was very positive. Despite the limited range for the first models of only 70 to 100 miles on a full charge, the brand manager of the EV1 once described the response of those customers who leased the cars as, quote, wonderfully maniacal loyalty, end quote. People were taking to this car with immense dedication, to the point that when it seemed like GM's support for it was flagging, one of their initial TV commercials received an Emmy nomination, but after that, initial surge their marketing for the car was limited to ads in newspapers and direct mailers. And so after that marketing support seemed to diminish, one EV1 driver, who was a cinematographer for the TV show Star Trek Voyager, spent $20,000 of his own money to produce and air four commercials for the car, completely on his own, due to his desire to see the car become a success. Now, there were issues with some of the early EV1 batteries, those lead-acid batteries that I mentioned. 
There was a faulty charge port that could, in some situations, become hot enough to catch fire, and that happened at least once to a car that was charging. No one was hurt, but it was enough to cause GM to recall a few hundred of the first-generation EV1s to replace their batteries with those newer, rechargeable AA-style batteries that the second-generation models had. New car leases were issued, and drivers had the opportunity to drop their leases at no charge if they so desired, due to the inconvenience, but very few did. That was in the year 2000, and the assembly line had stopped producing EV1s the year before, in 1999. In 2002, GM let the people driving EV1s know that they would be pulling all EV1s from the road, and the program was officially canceled in 2003. GM said that they couldn't sell enough of the EV1 to make the program profitable, and that part of what kept them from continuing to sell these cars were regulations similar to those that forced them to produce the car to begin with. California required that car makers continue to produce parts and infrastructure for all car models for 15 years minimum after they stop producing it to ensure that car buyers are not left with a car that they cannot fix. And because so many components of the EV1 were new and unique to that model, it simply did not make financial sense for them to scale up production and maintain a replacement stockpile of components when the numbers and infrastructure for the car were just so wobbly and unpredictable. In response, drivers of the car started sending new pre-signed lease agreements and checks into GM, along with promises that GM could terminate their leases if expensive repairs were ever required, ostensibly addressing the concerns that were voiced by the company as their reason to stop producing it. GM turned them all down and returned all the checks, and in November of 2003, they began reclaiming the leased cars, and they sent the vast majority of them to be crushed, though about 40 were donated to museums and schools, but all with their electric powertrains deactivated, so that the cars could never again run. The nature of this story, of the immense popularity of this car, and the loyalty that it inspired, followed by the seemingly malicious treatment of the car and the technology behind it by the company that ostensibly was in a good spot to try to take advantage of that surge of enthusiasm, has led to theories, some backed by evidence and some more along the lines of fuzzy conspiracy theories you often find when the seemingly inexplicable occurs and very little data exists one way or another to support or contradict whatever you might want to claim actually happened. The Occam's Razor explanation is that GM did what they had to in order to fulfill a mandate by a government body, and they toyed with the idea of making it a bigger thing, something that might be profitable and good for their image, but eventually decided that the numbers just didn't add up. Maybe the technology would make sense someday, but for the moment at least, it would be more akin to running a charity, continuing to produce that car, and they were certainly not a charity. The slightly more speculative theory, which is still backed by a decent amount of evidence, is that GM's decision in this matter was heavily influenced by players who flourish within the existing car market, and they feared that a successful electric car 
could lead to the end of their payday. GM themselves, it's claimed, feared that their very profitable spare parts market might flag if all the cars they're providing parts for are suddenly obsolete, replaced by a completely new type of car and accompanying sets of parts that they would have to develop and that they would have to make new investments to be able to manufacture on scale. But the automobile industry as a whole, it's also claimed, might have played a role here. It's said that they feared that if pressure were successfully applied by CARB in California to force GM to sell a certain number of zero-emission vehicles each year, and everything was hunky-dory as a result of that pressure, and in fact, the new electric car does really well, it could cause other state governments to follow suit, and other countries around the world as well. And from a purely numbers-based perspective, that would truly suck for the auto industry. So they not only pulled their support for the EV1 program, they also sued CARB. And along with all those other automakers, they won. Though GM's win, it should be noted, was predicated on the supposed lack of customer interest in the EV1. An argument that some of their numbers seemed to back, just in terms of pure sales, but those numbers were based only on the sales that they allowed to happen. And some people claim that the actual numbers that mattered were the people who were on the waiting list, who wanted to buy a car but could not. And those waiting lists were fairly extensive. And they might have been even more extensive had GM kept up their pace and the scale of their marketing, as they would have for most cars that they put on the market, but which they did not continue to invest in for the EV1. There was a documentary that was released in 2006 called Who Killed the Electric Car, in which it is further claimed, in addition to intentional self-sabotage on General Motors' part, to kill off the EV1 to avoid being forced to produce more electric cars if they accidentally demonstrated a successful electric car brand. There was also pressure being applied by the oil industry and their lobbyists and other similar interests. There is some evidence for this, especially if you look at the broader picture and oil's past meddling and things like the removal of San Francisco's trolley system. But in my mind, the more concrete, reliable evidence offers up plenty of rationale for GM to have axed the program all by itself, even lacking that larger conspiracy of a bigger group of electric car haters. I think both could be true, potentially, as with many things, but the differing storylines here offer up different implied solutions as well. And the solution to the former, namely building out a profitable electric vehicle infrastructure to ensure car makers are financially incentivized to ignore their other concerns, seems like a more realistic goal for those who wish to see more electric cars on the road than something like, say, deciding to topple the global fossil fuel economy, which would be required otherwise. The latter could actually result as a consequence of the former. The global fossil fuel economy could slowly diminish if you put into place the infrastructure required to create electric cars on scale. But the order in which you approach these sorts of things definitely matters in terms of practicality. There are many other interesting details to the story of the EV1 that are shared in that documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? 
including possible connections to Middle Eastern politics and the purposeful hyping of hydrogen cars to help kill government-mandated zero-emissions requirements, and the role of the George W. Bush administration in helping General Motors move on to a next step that was more focused on producing gas-guzzling SUVs and trucks than anything even distantly related to a fuel economy-focused car or an electric car. There was actually a sequel to Who Killed the Electric Car called Revenge of the Electric Car that came out five years later in 2011. I saw the original one in theaters when it came out, but I didn't even know the sequel existed. But I tracked down a copy and watched it while researching this episode, and it's a pretty good film. It's worth checking out, though I would note that both documentaries are primarily useful as background information to the storyline of the electric car, and to see some of the sniping that took place, and still does take place to certain degrees today, between the personalities that have led the way for the modern electric car movement. Because even the sequel, the one that was made in 2011, just six years ago, seems a bit like ancient history in certain regards. It takes place just before and after the 2008 global economic collapse, a point where electric cars were just about to hit a new stride, and during which a climate change-denying General Motors official started to head up the production of a new Chevy electric car brand, and the first Tesla was about to hit the streets, and the head of Nissan was determined to get out in front of his international competitors by creating a mass-market electric car before his rivals. So it was all pretty interesting stuff, but a great deal of it is no longer super relevant because the scene has changed so dramatically. And what I want to talk about today is not GM or Nissan or even Tesla specifically, though we'll start out with a news article about them. The main topic that I want to cover is the electric car as a whole. It's promise, its conceivable downsides, and some potential timelines, both optimistic and pessimistic, that could help us make educated guesses about what the coming years have in store for us in terms of transportation and broader social realignment. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start from today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Tesla Unveils $35,000 Model 3 Sedan. Let's get some basic terminology out of the way first. An electric vehicle is any vehicle, be it a car, truck, bus, train, plane, that uses straight-up electricity to power its motion. So you can pop a battery into an electric car or attach an electric train to a current, and it will go. The method of locomotion will be different in each case. A car will use that electricity to turn wheels. A train might use electricity to generate a magnetic field, which allows it to float along a rail. But in all cases, this type of vehicle uses electricity to move. That electricity is used to create mechanical energy in order to instigate motion. A vehicle that uses an internal combustion engine, on the other hand, typically converts some type of raw material into chemical energy, which is then used to generate locomotion. 
In the case of a traditional car that contains what's called a four-stroke engine, this means that the engine uses the fuel that you pump into it to create very rapid, very small explosions over and over and over again. These explosions create gas that, because they're in a very small space, creates a lot more force than you might think. And that force moves a series of pistons, which cycle through a four-step process that involves pushing the piston up, which then brings air and gas into the engine. It then compresses that air and gas and combusts that air and gas and creates tiny but compressed explosions that push the piston back down. And during that part of the process, it also evacuates the exhaust, the waste gas that was created by that explosion. This process converts all that explosion-generated motion into mobility by essentially just turning a thing called a crankshaft or some other similar component, which in turn spins the tires, or it spins the propellers, or whatever else. Depending on what kind of vehicle is being moved in this way, the process is similar, but the specific engine components and the way that they move will be somewhat different. A hybrid vehicle tends to have components of both of these main types of engine, and in some cases simply duplicates both within the same space. Some submarines, for instance, will be powered by diesel engines when they're above the surface of the water, but will switch to electric batteries when they are diving underwater. Hybrid cars, like the Toyota Prius, typically have smaller-than-average traditional motors paired with either a nickel-metal hydride battery, that's the one that the second-generation EV1 had, similar to the rechargeable AA batteries you have at home, or a lithium-ion battery, which is increasingly becoming the standard for all electric and hybrid cars, and which is the same type of battery that you will find in most laptops and smartphones. The secret sauce of good hybrid vehicles is the software that tells the car when to switch between the combustion engine and the battery. Generally, the batteries are recharged by pushing down on the brakes, so it does so passively over time, rather than you having to plug the car in at night or at a charging station, though there are hybrid models that can be charged that way as well. But as a consequence of this pairing, in practice, hybrid cars tend to get far better gas mileage than other traditional combustion cars. But they're also very much still just a half measure. They're far better than traditional engine cars in terms of their exhaust output, but they still use gas, and they do not have what I, at least, consider to be the main benefits of a fully electric car, and I will get to those benefits in a few minutes. So why is this specific milestone, the Model 3, for this specific car brand, Tesla, so important that it warrants this type of article to announce its release. Well, first and foremost, electric vehicles in the past handful of years have come to be seen by most players in the industry and in adjacent industries as the future of the automobile industry. There are still people who scoff at this idea, and there are still those who would definitely contest that assertion, and it is still nowhere near a done deal that you could set your watch by. But so many automakers are so heavily invested at this point that if electric cars don't take off and do not goose the car sales numbers in the coming years, that probably doesn't bode very well for car makers in general. So the interests of people who want electric cars to take over 
and give gas guzzlers the boot for many different reasons, including the environmental reasons, and the interests of the cold-calculating capitalists who are simply looking at the numbers and hoping to please their investors and sell a lot of cars are fairly well-aligned on this topic right now, which is something that could not be said even five years ago. And an important addendum to that bit of knowledge is Tesla's place in the spectrum of electric vehicle makers. Namely, they are kind of considered to be the gold standard brand that everyone else is watching and chasing. A little bit like Apple is perceived by some within the smartphone market. Fairly or unfairly, Tesla has become synonymous with electric cars, specifically nice, interesting, futuristic feeling electric cars. They've become almost like a mascot for the ambition to push these electric cars into the mainstream. And this position that Tesla occupies is somewhat laughable for many different reasons. Primary among them is that there are already very popular electric cars available from major car manufacturers. And some of these cars are available at a price point that is already below what Tesla has been trying to hit with this new Model 3 that they've just unveiled. The very popular Chevy Volt, as I record this, can be bought brand new for just over $34,000, not counting the additional tax incentives that can bring that down as low as $27,000. By all rights, Chevy and the other major manufacturers who have already brought the electric car into the realm of possibility for the mainstream public, they should probably be getting a lot more props than they are. But because Tesla has been so daring and has told such a great story, they have amazing branding, and because they've operated in a way that aligns a bit better with the moral sensibilities that underpin this specific facet of the industry for so many people, they have come to more or less set the tone. They've become the company to watch. And for many people, a Tesla vehicle is a mental stand-in for electric vehicles as a whole, as a technology. Now, this model, the Model 3 in particular, is special because it is the model that Tesla founder Elon Musk has been talking about, has been promising from the very beginning when he first launched the company. Musk is somewhat unusual within the industries that he straddles, which include the world of solar electric power and space travel through SolarCity and SpaceX, respectively. And he's unusual in that he often lays out his grand scheme, or at least his initial grand scheme, early on when he's first getting started. And this is a very Silicon Valley kind of thing to do, and it clashes with the way that traditional car companies like GM operate. And Musk said in this case, from the get-go, that he was planning to release a top-of-the-line sports car for wealthy people that was all electric first. And that would allow him to figure out the industry, starting at the luxury level, and the profits from selling those sports cars would allow him to make a sedan, which would still be super high quality, and it would still be too expensive for most people, but it would be like a family version of that super expensive sports car for wealthy people. And it would be a little bit more affordable, something like $80,000 instead of $100,000. Then he would use those profits from that car to build the car that he actually wants to build, a $35,000 fully electric family car that would compete with all of the other traditional combustion engine cars on the market. 
It still wouldn't be the cheapest thing in the world, but it would be very high quality, fully electric, and would make use of everything that they'd learned, but also, very importantly, the supply chain and infrastructure and systems and the benefits of scale that they had established with those other cars that they built and sold as a lead-up to the cheaper model. Now, in reality, Tesla also made a crossover SUV, which is an SUV that's built on a full-size car's chassis, in the time between making the sedan and the new Model 3, which is the long-promised $35,000 everyman car that he was talking about from the get-go, which is the topic of this article. And all of these cars released by Tesla at all of these different price points got a whole lot of press. But this specific announcement is for the Model 3, which is why the buildup has been even more hyped than all of the other releases, and which is why it takes on increased importance, being from both a yardstick company that everyone's watching within a burgeoning field, but also being a promised, potentially industry-defining car at a price point that makes it far more attainable and far more mainstream than its predecessors. Now, I think it should be mentioned here that this long-term plan that Musk announced years ago is part of what helped spur some of these other players in the electric car space into action that caused them to do what they're doing today. GM certainly wasn't looking at Tesla back then and saying, oh my god, we'd better get there before them, they're a big threat to us. But that Tesla was getting so much press and promising to supersede the old players in the car space to beat Detroit from Silicon Valley was a bit of a shot across the bow. It was a direct challenge. There were numerous other far more vital catalysts that led to all the major car makers in the world suddenly turning their collective attention toward electric vehicles. But one brand-centric consideration that was part of that larger collection of considerations was Tesla entering the fray with a famous face and a famous billionaire face at that at its helm. And he had a lot of hot words for the traditional way of doing things in the car industry. And he had a reputation for being pretty ballsy when it comes to anything to which he sets his mind. So in other words, Musk's position within Tesla has made Tesla more influential than its actual size should have warranted from the very beginning. And it continues to have that influence, that outsized influence as a result of that and a lot of other things today. But what about all those non-Tesla considerations? What is it that has all of these different players from many different countries around the world and from many different positions, different tiers on the auto world respectability scale suddenly congregating around this concept, that of electric cars? If so much of the technology that was required to make a decent electric car already existed back in the early 2000s, why are we moving toward a meaningful inflection point? today rather than a decade ago? Part of the answer to that question is that you tend to build up a lot of momentum when you move in one direction for a very long time. And when you're pulling along with you in that one direction, a substantial amount of revenue, infrastructure, raw materials and supply lines, employees, corporate structures, and everything else that goes into operating a major car company, that momentum incentivizes you to keep moving in that same direction for as long as humanly possible. Because changing direction, even just a little bit, will be immensely difficult and costly. You've got a lot of weight behind your every action. You might have to shed some of that weight. You might have to rebuild much of what you've spent decades building 
A lot of people might lose their jobs and a lot of companies might go out of business in the turmoil caused by even the smallest of pivots. There are also interests not directly involved in that headlong rush in a single direction that have a vested interest in keeping you from changing course. The most obvious outside player in this case is the oil industry, which could shrivel up to a fraction of its current size if cars become electrified. But there are also other interests like auto mechanics who have existing skill sets that will need to be updated or discarded and rebuilt from scratch if they're going to be able to continue to operate as they did before, if anything changes within the auto industry. And let's be honest, if the choice is between having to massively reinvest in new tools and skills and knowledge to adjust to a new automobile industry reality, or simply continuing to earn a living off the assets you already have, the choice is usually pretty simple. You stick with what you've got, and you keep milking it as long as you can. You keep benefiting from past investments that you've already made for as long as possible. That's just common sense. And any change to that that disallows them from continuing to benefit from those assets that they've built is potentially catastrophic, especially if their margins are already thin. But that said, the two main forces that have brought everyone to the table so suddenly, I would argue, are a pair of spirals that are predicted to occur in the very near future, and which some people have argued are already happening today to some degree, and that we are currently in the midst of these spirals, but we don't necessarily realize it yet. And the first of these spirals is shaped by the variables that will be beneficial for electric vehicles, including the economies of scale, which will lower the cost of components that are currently still pricey as they are produced and shipped and purchased in higher qualities. That will get better with time as more electric vehicles, EVs, are sold and on the road. Another similar variable are the perks of improved infrastructure over time, which I'm using in this context as a catch-all term for the cost and efficiency benefits that will come from more refined design, sourcing, production, distribution, sales channel, and customer service systems, and the improved perception of EV ownership, which will come as more people start to own them. But in addition to those infrastructural perks that will emerge over time as EVs become more common, there are also many and varied cost-saving perks, including the lower cost of fueling, or in this case, charging one's car, and the fact that the charging costs will likely decrease over time as well, and possibly quite precipitously, as the surrounding infrastructure, the electric grid, and the way that we generate power adjusts to take into account this new electric car reality. Meaning that right now, within a structure custom-built for internal combustion vehicles, with gas stations all over the place and mechanics that specialize in gas-driven vehicles being far more common than types that specialize in electric cars, and insurance companies primed for traditional cars and not for electric cars, the cost of ownership for EVs is already typically equivalent or less than that of a comparable internal combustion car. But what makes this a spiral is that all of those things I just listed, as those shift in favor of EVs, there will be more charging stations, more electric grids using cleaner and cheaper sources of fuel to generate electricity, more options in terms of insurance, and more data on what insurance should cost, which brings down the prices. There will be more options in terms of electric car models, more parts available, more mechanics that specialize in that side of the industry. 
And in general, if things go according to estimates, at some point, the entire automobile industry will flip and cars running on the internal combustion engine simply won't be a thing anymore, except as interesting novelties and nostalgia-inducing toys for wealthy people. Some countries have already set dates as to when no more internal combustion engine cars may be sold, and some car companies have already set dates as to when they will stop producing traditional gas-powered cars, focusing all their future output on electric vehicles. Britain, for instance, will not allow the sale of any new diesel or gas-powered car by the year 2040, and France is committed to the same. Volvo will cease producing cars that run purely on internal combustion engines by 2019. So if you look forward in time and imagine what will happen when the tide shifts, when there are more charging stations than gas stations, more mechanics serving EVs than gas vehicles, more new electric cars than gas cars, you could see why this is considered to be a beneficial spiral for electric vehicles as a whole. At a certain tipping point, EVs will just make a whole lot more sense on essentially every level than vehicles that run on internal combustion. And that will spell doom for the structures that currently rely on gas-powered cars for their continued existence. And so that first electric vehicle favoring spiral runs parallel with a downward spiral for gas-fueled vehicles. As the number of electric cars on the road goes up, so will the resources available to electric vehicles. The legislation passed that favor electric vehicles and the benefits for people who drive electric vehicles, ranging from, again, the available mechanics to the preponderance of charging stations. But what makes this spiral particularly frightening for entities tethered to the continued dominance of the gas-powered car is that as it ramps up, even before it reaches that inflection point, their income and their influence will begin to falter. And at a certain point, the oil industry lobbyists will not carry the same weight that they once carried. And suddenly all new legislation will favor the EVs and their associated industries, solar power, wind power, battery manufacturers, and so on. This currently empowered network of industries will be replaced. And it will probably happen slowly but surely, but then all at once. There will almost certainly be a tipping point at which they simply cease to be relevant at least relevant at the level where they influence anyone other than hobbyists and enthusiasts. Now, some forecasters speculate that the gas-powered auto industry may be able to successfully tie their brand to patriotism or traditional values or something like that for a time, trying to attempt what the gun industry successfully did back in the 80s and 90s. But cars are not niche products like guns, and it's unlikely, especially as prices dramatically drop on electric vehicles, including their overall cost of ownership, that many people will be convinced that buying a gas-guzzling SUV as a symbol of American well-being, and that they should spend double on the internal combustion engine-driven car instead of the cheaper, comparable, and more convenient electric one, simply doesn't make sense. Now, we're still at the beginning stages of both of these spirals, if indeed we've actually stepped into them at all. There's valid debate about that, and I think skepticism is absolutely warranted when it comes to some of the more bullish arguments. But just as there's momentum within the traditional car industry to keep moving along the same track as before, there does seem to be a great deal of momentum building 
for the mainstream adoption of EVs as well. And an increasingly popular truism seems to be that it's not a matter of whether EVs will replace traditional vehicles, but when they will replace them. And honestly, if you look at some of the numbers involved in this discussion, it becomes very clear very quickly why so many prognosticators are looking at this situation and saying, okay, yeah, of course, electric vehicles are going to replace traditional cars and trucks. The cost of fuel, which in this case means charging up an electric vehicle's battery, is one such argument in favor of electric vehicle adoption. The cost of charging up your battery will vary based on where you live and what kind of motor and battery are in your car. But one comparison that I think is interesting is that a Honda Civic gas-powered car, which gets pretty solid gas mileage, will cost on average about $1,400 to drive 15,000 miles. A Tesla Model X, which is the crossover SUV model that they've got available, only costs about $700 to go the same distance. So the cost of fueling an electric car, in this case, is roughly half of that of fueling a traditional combustion engine. And that's comparing two different cars, but they are both from respected brand names. And they are both cars that are perched on full-size car chassis. So they are comparable in this case. We're not like comparing a Vespa scooter to a Land Rover here. They're on the same chassis. They are roughly equivalent, as equivalent as you can make cars that are predicated on two different modes of power anyway. In addition to the fuel cost savings, numerous groups and individuals have run numbers on the lifetime cost of ownership of electric vehicles compared to internal combustion engine vehicles. And although the lower cost of charging them compared to fueling them is already compelling by itself, and the cost of that energy down the line will probably be even more compelling as our national grids are updated, hopefully into smart grids to better serve the emerging EV market. The lowered cost of repairing and just generally operating an electric car is in many ways even more meaningful and interesting to me. And I think it will be for the public too once more people become aware of these particular figures. Now, the numbers that finally made ultra clear to me what a difference there is in the maintenance and longevity of electric vehicles are the numbers 2000 and 20. 2,000 is the number of parts found in a traditional combustion engine. There's around 2,000 parts, large and small, in your engine, making that whole tiny explosion, moving the pistons, turning the crankshaft thing, operate. The number of parts found in an electric vehicle's engine is around 20. 20 parts. And there are far fewer moving parts overall in the entire vehicle throughout an electric vehicle compared to a combustion engine vehicle. Now, if you think about it, the vast majority of damage of wear and tear that accrues on any device, and that definitely applies to a car as well, is in those moving parts. When you rub things together, when you blow stuff up, when you're not only catalyzing chemical reactions, but also heating up a bunch of metal and plastic parts and slipping a bunch of fluid between all those parts to try to keep them from melting. And when all that's happening in a relatively small area with relatively complex components, there's a lot of room for failure, for things just wearing out. It is remarkable that engines of this kind work as well as they do, frankly. And that they do work that well is the result of very clever feats of engineering that have evolved over the last hundred years.
But that entire engine system, the entire internal combustion engine system in a modern car is still predicated on broadly the same concepts that were new and neat a century ago. Electric vehicles are far simpler. Two orders of magnitude simpler. 20 parts compared to 2,000 parts. And though there are still complex pieces involved, and there are still moving parts to worry about, like the tires and the axles, and there are complex non-digital components, like the cooling system, to worry about as well, the vast majority of the complexity in the vehicle, the pieces that experience all this wear and tear in other vehicles, have been converted into digital replacements. Which means that although there are potential new issues that could arise that you might have to worry about with those types of electric systems, the process of replacing them will be more like replacing a computer hard drive than replacing a timing belt. And a lot of the issues can be worked out digitally, and your car can be upgraded even via Wi-Fi rather than at a garage. This means that your car can actually get better with time. And we've already seen this happen via upgrades that have been sent wirelessly to Tesla cars all over the world, which in some cases has given them improved mileage, and in other cases faster 0 to 60 acceleration speeds. These electronic replacement systems make a car function a lot more like a clean electronic device, like a smartphone, than a dirty, oily, analog pipes and chemicals system with a million things that can go wrong and actual explosions happening inside of it constantly, where things are prone to wear out just by operating in the exact way that they're supposed to be operating. The top 10 problems that need to be fixed in a car that require you to take your car into a mechanic are replacing the oxygen sensor, replacing the catalytic converter, replacing the ignition coils and spark plugs, tightening or replacing the fuel cap, replacing the thermostat, replacing the mass airflow sensor, replacing the spark plug wires, and replacing the evaporative emissions purge control valve and purging solenoid. If you don't know what half of those things are, you're not alone with that, but as of 2015, those were the top 10 problems that caused people to bring their cars into a mechanic for repairs. And the repairs themselves cost between $15 for a spare part that you could quickly replace yourself without any technical knowledge, all the way up to about $1,200 for a new catalytic converter. The reason I read that list off is that none of the top 10 problems that people experience with their current car exist in electric cars. Most of those parts don't even exist in an electric car, but the ones that do cannot fail. The failure state that causes them to need a repair do not exist in electric vehicles. And again, yes, there will be other things, electronic things most likely, that need repairs on electric vehicles. At the moment, the most common repair that's been necessary on EVs has been replacing the tires. And if you think about how often you replace your tires, that gives you a pretty decent idea of how often this type of vehicle needs to be repaired. Very seldom compared to current vehicles. Things can still go wrong, but the number of potentially wrong things that might break seems to have been dramatically diminished. And it also seems that of the things that can go wrong, many of them are relatively quick and inexpensive fixes. And all that simplicity, having 20 parts rather than 2,000 parts in the engine, among all the other differences and upgrades that have been made in electric cars, 
offers benefits beyond the immediate financial boon of requiring fewer car repairs. Vehicles with internal combustion engines have an average lifespan of 150,000 miles. Some cars will last quite a bit longer than that. In my family, we tend to get Hondas, which, if well-maintained, and there's a great deal of maintenance required, but if you treat them well, you get the timing belt replaced on time and all of that. My family's cars usually last well past the 300,000-mile mark. But for most cars, 200,000 miles is the point where you're starting to think about maybe getting a new car. Or at the very least, in the back of your mind, you're thinking about what you will do when your current car finally collapses for good, and it's more expensive to repair it than to get a new one. Most electric cars, on the other hand, are expected to last 500,000 miles on the low end. Some people in the know are currently saying that 1 million miles will probably be more common, especially as more knowledgeable mechanics and replacement parts become widely available. And again, this is mostly because there is simply less wear and tear possible on a simple machine that has fewer things rubbing up against each other. And in a machine in which there are not continuous tiny explosions being used as the means of locomotion, the current price tag of electric cars entering the fray against their gas-powered brethren is still perceived to be high in comparison. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do not have a spare $35,000 to just spend on a whim on a Model 3 Tesla or a Chevy Volt. They're still relatively expensive. But if you consider that $35,000 could get you a car that lasts half a million to a million miles, the math there becomes a lot more favorable for the electric car compared to a car that lasts less than half as long and which might be a little bit cheaper. Add to those figures the promise that this car can get better with time because of software updates and upgrades to the car itself, but also to the charger system and the electric grid. And that price tag doesn't look quite so high anymore. It almost seems like a smart investment looked at a certain way. And those savings become even more compelling when you look at them from the perspective of somebody who is managing a fleet of vehicles, especially frequent use vehicles like taxis and buses and delivery trucks, and they get crazily good when you combine them with autonomous driver technologies. Even the simplest of automation technologies, like a bus driving itself in a lane that is only used for that bus along a prescribed path through a city, would result in immense savings for the government or other entity operating that bus, especially if you combine it with electric vehicle technology. And to take that thought even further, think about this. The highest costs of operating taxi services and Ubers right now are the costs of buying the car and the cost of having a driver in that car. If you remove the cost of the driver and reduce the overall cost of both driving and maintaining the vehicles over a long period of time, you arrive at this kind of perfect storm scenario. I mentioned this little sub-scenario. Because many people are seeing electric cars as an integral part of the equation when it comes to evolving a car ownership-free society, or at least one in which far fewer people need to own cars. The cost of owning and maintaining a car could become way higher than simply calling one when you need it, using an app to summon one whenever you need a ride somewhere. 
as there would be these incredibly cheaply operating fleets of electric cars cycling around town, and one would always be available when you need it. These automated EVs could choose the best routes and interact with each other to make car accidents a thing of the past. They could remove the need to have parking lots all over the place, which would free up a massive amount of space around cities, but also in most of our homes. A huge chunk of real estate would become available to anyone who currently has a garage with a car in it, because they might not need to own that car anymore. They could turn that space into something else. Electric vehicles, then, are fairly remarkable and change-inducing all by themselves, but tie them into the sharing economy and electronic payment processing and automation and a dozen other technologies that are just now coming of age. And you find yourself looking at something pretty dang groundbreaking, something that could change the shape of society in addition to, hopefully, changing the condition of the environment. So long as we change the way that we currently generate our electricity, anyway. Now, I paint that picture in that way so that it's hopefully more clear why so many people are so excited and bullish about the potential for electric vehicles. It's important, I think, to understand that this technology will likely have repercussions far beyond car manufacturers and auto repair professionals. But I don't want to imply that this shift will not have any downsides. Especially at first, the cost of operating an electric vehicle could be higher than that of operating a traditional vehicle in some locations, especially in places where the tax benefits have lapsed, where there are abundant used cars available, or where there are taxes levied on new vehicles of any kind. The initial sticker price is also almost always going to be higher, at least today, than comparable gas-burning cars, unless you're on the market for a higher-end sports car. Electric vehicles have substantially lower range than a gas-powered car, the latter of which has potentially infinite range, if you ignore the few minutes that it takes to fuel up at any of the bajillion gas stations around the world. Electric vehicles can carry their own charger, which can plug into any standard outlet, but those small chargers take hours, if not most of the day, to fully charge that way. And the higher-end, higher-bandwidth chargers that are being installed at gas stations and museums and schools and government buildings and the like are still comparably more difficult to find, and they still take upward of a half-hour to completely recharge your car. In addition to being far less ubiquitous, these chargers are also not universal, and some of them, Tesla's charging stations for instance, do not work with any other brand of car, they only charge Tesla's. And even outside of that, there are still multiple different standards for charging outlets on these different cars. So you might find yourself at a charging station only to find that the charging cable does not fit the outlet on your particular model car. This is an issue that they are making adapters and other sorts of solutions to find their way around, but today it is still an issue for some people with some types of cars. So while EVs can be just as convenient for some people, especially people who are just looking to take a regular commute or to drive around a city and go no more than a few hundred miles per day, which is way better than the 100-mile range that they had 10 years ago, but not way, way better, that's still a very limited use case compared to the immense flexibility found in gas-powered cars. A few hundred miles on a charge is stellar for an electric car right now. And I'm sure that will improve in the near future, but it is still a very, very short distance compared to the potentially infinite distance that gas-powered cars can go, so long as they have access to the highly ubiquitous gas stations. There are also a whole lot of unknowns across the board with electric vehicles at the moment. 
A lot of things are being estimated and tested the best that they can, but you cannot fake a million miles of real-world usage, especially not on scale. There's no way to know what problems will emerge in one out of 100,000 electric vehicles after each of them have been driven 500,000 miles until you have that many vehicles driving that far over a period of time in a variety of different environments and use cases. So there may be bigger issues down the line that we simply haven't seen yet and therefore cannot predict. And this lack of long-term knowledge about the technology has a contemporary downside in that electric vehicles tend to have higher insurance costs than traditional gas-powered vehicles. The insurance companies do not know what to expect any more than we do. So although EVs seem to be safer on average than gas-powered cars, they still on average cost more to insure. And again, perhaps the biggest downside right now is that the modern world as a whole on so many levels was built with the internal combustion engine in mind. And as a consequence, everything from fueling stations to the distance between cities was predicated on the use of internal combustion engine cars. And that means that even things that kind of jive with the current limitations of EVs will probably be just a little bit off. And that's only if it's even remotely close. And this will continue to be the case until and unless things do eventually flip in favor of EVs. So even people who have waited till now to consider an electric car to go with the bigger bulk of the crowd will still suffer from some of the downsides of being an early adopter in this particular field. Those downsides will probably go away with time, but we don't know how long it will take for those spirals I mentioned before to reach their full force. And we also don't know how long it will be before the EVs are the dominant vehicles pushing those downsides onto gas-powered cars instead. So that's some speculation about what might be in store. That's the forward-looking context. But how do things look right now? What kind of runway are we currently on leading to those potential futures? Well, as of the day I'm recording this, there are 33 highway-capable fully electric cars on the market, meaning cars that are capable of going 65 miles per hour or 105 kilometers per hour. And these cars are made around the world by companies in China to Canada to Croatia. That number increases by 10 when you add into the mix the so-called city-speed cars, which are capable of going 62 miles per hour, which is 100 kilometers per hour or less. These cars initially seem to be a lot less useful and interesting than the highway speed cars, but it's worth keeping in mind that a lot of people who are making informed predictions about the autonomous car rollout expect that in the early years in particular, most autonomous cars that serve as our taxis and Ubers will probably be going something like 35 miles per hour, so relatively slow, a little over half of what those city speed cars are usually capable of. And this is because, first, going that slowly will prevent a lot of damage that could be caused, potentially, by early efforts and mistakes found in autonomous driving, and it will give the city a chance to adjust accordingly, while also giving politicians and car companies a way of appeasing those who are concerned about such things by assuring them that there won't be any high-speed accidents between automated electric cars. They'll be going slowly enough that, if they cause any damage, the damage that they cause will be relatively limited. But lower speeds in this context are also feasible and even desirable 
because within a city, these autonomous vehicles will be covering shorter distances and they will be networked together. So they will be going more slowly than other cars at top speed, but they will also be moving continuously, likely without ever needing to stop while in transit because traffic will not exist for them. They'll be optimized to filter past one another and to work with the flow of their other autonomous comrades. So these little slow cars might actually have a decently strong future if things go in that direction. They might actually win a race against a sports car driven by a human who is going the same place but stuck in traffic on the highway. The bulk of planned electric cars, though, are scheduled to come out in the next few years, from 2018 through 2020, a point where some of the laggards in development feel that they'll be in a good enough spot to release their cars of the future, and also at a point where they'll be able to better integrate what their competitors have learned in the meantime. They will also, at that time, benefit from upgraded electric vehicle infrastructure. So while there are only a few dozen EVs on the market today, that number is expected to quadruple, at least by 2020. Many car manufacturers have already released timelines for their standard sedan and coupe electric vehicle models, but there are also some really interesting deviations from the norm on the horizon, like the Chinese Tesla competitor, CHJ Automotive's plan to release an ultra-compact electric car that will sell for only 7,000 euros, or just about 8,000 US dollars. So while some of these cars will be almost boring and almost indistinguishable from traditional cars from the outside at least, we should see some interesting new takes on the concept of a car as well. The global electric car market is increasing in size year over year, though it was a slow start beginning with 2005 when there were approximately 1,700 all-electric cars on the road worldwide. The number was about 6,000 in 2009. Starting in 2010, though, when the Chevy Volt and Nissan Leaf hit the market, that number increased nearly tenfold, with 50,000 new sales of electric cars in 2011, and then 125,000 sales in 2012, and then 213,000 sales in 2013. Over 315,000 electric vehicles were sold in 2014, 565,000 in 2015, and about 775,000 electric vehicles were sold worldwide in 2016. Now that is fantastic growth for a market that was incredibly tiny just a short time ago. But to put those numbers back in perspective, the EV market still only makes up 0.15% of the 1.4 billion vehicles on the road worldwide as of 2016. Notably, new sales of electric vehicles are higher than that as a percentage of the whole. They come in at 0.86%, almost a full percentage point, which is better, but there is still some room to grow here, I think it's fair to say. Electric vehicles only make up less than 1%, less than 1 out of every 100 motor vehicle sales in the world each year. Now, those numbers are, of course, substantially different place to place if you break them down on a country-by-country basis. Norway has the highest electric vehicle market penetration in the world, and nearly a third, 29.1%, of their new vehicles are electric vehicles as of 2016. And that same year, a full 5% of all vehicles on the road in Norway were electric vehicles. 
But in terms of numbers rather than percentage, China is currently leading with about 645,000 highway-capable electric vehicles having been sold in the country as of December 2016. And the U.S. is in second place with a cumulative EV sales total of over 570,000, also as of December 2016. Electric car markets in both places and in the European Union, which collectively has about 100,000 more EV sales than the U.S., are even higher, as much as 50% higher when you include the heavy-duty EV segment, which includes sales of things like electric buses and garbage trucks, alongside consumer vehicles on the consumer market. So most of the numbers I just gave you are the consumer market numbers. If you increase those numbers by about 50%, you have a better idea of what the total EV market looks like when you include things like buses and trucks. Now, a key component of the current EV consumer market are the tax incentives that many governments provide, which range in size depending on where you live, but which can be fairly substantial, as much as $7,500 in the U.S., which is given as a tax credit. So you only save the full amount if you would have otherwise had to pay that much in taxes in a single year. If your taxes the year that you buy the car are only $5,000, you don't have to pay that $5,000, but you do not get the other $2,500 that you could have saved if your taxes were higher. $7,500 is the maximum amount that you can save off your taxes that year. The credit is smaller if the car's battery is smaller, and such credits are no longer available after a particular car maker sells 200,000 qualified vehicles. So there is an incentive to buy sooner rather than later, lest Tesla or your automaker of choice runs out of credits to give away before you get yours. There are other incentives that are non-monetary. Some museums and other buildings, for instance, offer prime parking spots for electric vehicles. And in some states, you can use the carpool lane if you have a qualifying low-emission vehicle. But there is also pushback against the growing popularity of these vehicles, especially from those whose interests are put at risk by the burgeoning EV industry. Some of these people and organizations want to stop it completely, but many seem more interested in making the grade of adoption less steep, so they have more time to adjust their investments and prepare for the new reality that they can see coming. Many large oil interests like Saudi Arabia have already begun making huge investments in clean energy while still publicly being somewhat bullish on fossil fuels. There are going to be a lot of groups like that, I think, who say one thing publicly to keep the money rolling in for their existing assets and investments while they do something completely different on the back end to make sure that they are early investors in what they see as the next step and experience less competition as they do. But some groups do seem to be legitimately displeased with this new direction, rather than simply speaking out of both sides of their mouth about the topic for monetary purposes. The Koch brothers, for instance, the billionaire siblings who are well-known for spending their chemical industry fortune to fund a political and lobbying machine that's been responsible for things like Citizens United and the Tea Party movement here in the U.S., they are now turning their attention toward the EV industry and are trying to develop and promote a storyline that will help them kill off government incentives for electric vehicles. As part of that effort, they are spreading videos full of misinformation about electric vehicles on social media, 
saying, among other things, that these vehicles are actually more toxic and bad for people, especially poor people, than traditional gas-fueled cars. Now, most of what has been said in these ads has also been thoroughly debunked, but they do raise one very good point, I think, if perhaps unintentionally. And the point that they raise is this. Right now, the electric car movement is the playground of the wealthy. Very soon it will be the playground of the middle class if all goes according to plan. This shift won't be a total success, though, until and unless it can also be spread to the lower economic rungs of society. Now, this is something that I believe is on the agenda of some of the players in this space, and Musk's efforts to start expensive and allow the profits from those higher-end cars to fund incrementally lower-end cars is heartening. That's ideally how it should work in untested industries where no one is going to just step in with infinite dollars and fund a cheap electric car for no reason. You have to build a sustainable financial and infrastructural base. And when the components are still too expensive to sell cheaply, that is a great way to do it. But there is some concern that insufficient incentive to lower the prices beyond the, let's say, $25,000 mark exists right now. And yes, I know a lot of new gas cars today don't fall below that point either. And a lot of the lower end market today is in used cars. But especially because electric cars are predicted to be capable of lasting so much longer, I wonder what the used car market for them will even look like. How long will it be? How many years before today's $35,000 electric car reaches the used car market at, let's say, $10,000? Why would you trade in, at 150,000 miles, a car that might last 10 times that long? So that same model of reaching the less spendy levels of society probably won't translate well to the EV realm. Now, the really cool thing about this confluence of technologies, to me, is that it is so simple relative to other comparable technologies. And the economies of scale here could work incredibly well. The more batteries you produce, the cheaper they get. The more car frames you produce, the cheaper they get. The more clean energy you produce, the more the whole cycle benefits and expands and becomes cheaper for everyone across numerous industries. And ideally, that does mean everyone. Ideally, we have a $10,000 car that costs nearly nothing to operate for a million miles. That is within the realm of possibility once some of these scalable benefits really spin up. But there is an incentive with the way things currently operate to keep this technology relegated to the higher end, to goose profits in the car world for a while, profits that have been under near constant threat due to things like economic downturns in the used car industry and the younger generation's lessened interest in owning a car, or perhaps their economic realities that keep them from even considering the possibility of owning one. It could be that all the cheap cars remain stuck in China, owned by ride-sharing companies rather than individuals. That would suck for a lot of reasons, but it also seems somewhat likely, unless some fundamental aspects of our automotive industry change in the near future alongside the technology inside the cars that they're selling. Of course, that said, It could be that by the time such cars made their way to U.S. markets, people wouldn't even care because ride-sharing would be so widespread and cheap that buying a car, owning a car, upkeeping a car, storing a car would just seem totally financially cumbersome and ridiculous. 
So my concerns here might not be warranted for several different reasons. Now, all of the suppositions that I'm making here might seem like big leaps of logic that are perhaps unjustified, and especially within the time frame that we're thinking about, within a decade on the low end and before 2040 on the high end. But there is a real chance that in the near future, things in this space could shift very dramatically very, very quickly. There's a really wonderful article that I've used as a reference for a few different pieces of this episode, which I will link to in the show notes, and which was published on a Medium-based publication called New Co Shift. And that article is entitled, This is How Big Oil Will Die. Within that article, there are two examples of how quickly these kinds of shifts can take place and have taken place in the past. And I think those examples are pretty relevant here for this discussion. In 1998, digital cameras existed, but they totally sucked. The resolution on a relatively expensive, in the several hundred dollar range, digital camera was about 0.3 megapixels. And a megapixel means there are 1 million pixels, a million little dots of color in the photo that you take. For comparison, the standard resolution of a cheap film camera at that time was about 6 megapixels, and today's images snapped on your phone likely contain somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 16 megapixels on average. So 0.3 megapixels does not produce a very crisp image, especially compared to film at the time. So most camera companies back then, particularly Kodak, which was fairly dominant, didn't take the up-and-coming technology seriously. Pretty damning stories from within Kodak from that time period have emerged in the years since, which describe just how disdainful Kodak's leadership was about the idea that digital cameras would ever become even a minor threat to their bottom line. After all, digital cameras made up less than half of 1% of all camera sales that year. By 2003, though, five years later, digital cameras were outselling film cameras. And by 2005, two years after that, and seven years after those early expensive 0.3 megapixel digital cameras were made commercially accessible, film cameras accounted for less than half a percent of all camera sales. The entire camera market had flipped in less than a decade. And those numbers, by the way, do not even account for the then burgeoning field of digital cameras built into mobile phones, which were just beginning to enter the fray, and which have come to dramatically outnumber all other types of camera in the years since then. The other example given in that article is that of mobile phones. In 2007, Nokia owned 50% of the mobile phone market and had a market cap of $150 billion. That same year, Apple introduced the first smartphone, the iPhone. Less than five years later, in the summer of 2012, Nokia's market share of the mobile industry was down to 5%, from 50, remember, and its market cap was down to $6 billion, from $150 billion. Again, the time between those two data points was less than five years. In that time, the major players in that field had been upended and made nearly irrelevant at the hands of a completely new entrant in the industry that very few professionals took seriously as a competitor. 
That article goes on to reference some very compelling statistics derived from a think tank's findings about the gas-fueled automobile industry and oil industries, but also comparable industries like coal, which show what happens when a linchpin in a larger, seemingly fundamental structure is pulled and how quickly things can unravel for industries that have put all their eggs in that seemingly safe basket only to find later that it was not so safe after all. Again, I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a really great article for multiple reasons, but especially in terms of demonstrating with examples and with numbers exactly why that death spiral for oil is such a realistic proposition, despite how unrealistic it might seem to many people. So the futures we've been talking about here are all potentially relatively near futures. The most distant, solid speculations that I've seen go as far into the future as 2040, at which point, as I mentioned before, the UK and France plan to ban all new sales of gas and diesel-fueled cars. But the question now is, will that ban even matter at that point? Will any major car companies still be manufacturing such cars by then? Will the infrastructure to support those types of cars still exist? And if it does, will it still be cost-effective to own such a car? Or will electric vehicle support systems have completely wiped them out by that point? And will those electric vehicles be driven by you and me? Or will they be driven by strangers or bits of code? There are a whole lot of variables that will determine which future plays out and when and the specifics of how. Even things that seem like foregone conclusions can turn out to be flawed predictions, so this is in no way certain. And even if all the stars are aligned for a specific outcome, outside events like wars or economic slumps or electric grid crippling solar flares could change everything very quickly and with very little warning. There are slower moving variables as well. The continued existence of incentives or the elimination of those incentives could change the length of the runway taking us toward an electric vehicle-centric future. And special interest groups like fossil fuel lobbies and mechanics unions could decide that this transition is happening too fast and throw their substantial weight around to slow things down or completely stop some aspects of the larger shift that is occurring, which could knock the entire thing into disarray, at least for a while. It could also be, again, that our priorities change. The way we organize and set up societies change. The way we communicate and interact and exchange value changes. There are any number of shifts, large and small, within and outside of the transportation world that could adjust the details or the big picture of this seemingly incontrovertible future. The audiobook that I would like to recommend today is entitled Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chiang. This is a short story collection. contains eight different stories, including the short story that the movie Arrival was based on. Great movie, excellent story as well. But my favorite story in this novelette is actually one that I read online many, many years ago and which was later republished in this book which was just fantastic for me because I had forgotten the name of it and who it was by. But the story is entitled Understand, and it's about a man who suffers a brain injury and who's given 
an injection that's meant to repair his brain, and the injection instead makes him super intelligent, and subsequent injections make him even more beyond human super intelligent. And this conceit is not a new one, this isn't a new concept, but the way that it's approached in this story is so realistic. It makes other instances in fiction where people get super smart for whatever reason seem kind of silly in comparison. He's not just a smart, normal person in this story. His concerns change. His way of looking at the world changes. His methods of solving problems and thinking about personal problems change. It's strange to me how often supposedly very intelligent people in books and movies are simply normal people who know a lot of facts, and so they suffer from a whole lot of the same inadequacies as the rest of us normal human beings. They're just, you know, really good with computers and they can recite long strings of numbers. The narrator in this story, though, represents in my mind a far better example of what superintelligence might actually look like. And even more interesting, in some ways, this story also demonstrates what a conflict between two superintelligent beings might actually look like and how that might actually play out. So that story is Understand, and it is in the book Stories of Your Life and Others by Ted Chang. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can find me on pretty much every social network at Colin is my name. Feel free to reach out and say hello. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.